your sacrifice and, you, and your love, and um, uh, you're just raising well and loving us well. So thanks for being moms. Um, before we get started tonight, we're going to be in the book of Philippians. We're, we're continuing on in, in, this, in this journey on Philippians, and we'll be in uh, Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses um, eight, 18 through 26. I was actually uh, jo- joking with Michael earlier about this, th- this new rig that we have up here. I'm so used to wearing them here. And uh, I told, we were talking about how it, it gives you less credibility <laughs> to have these on as far as knowing the scriptures. You know, I think about some kind of scam artist when I see these things. <laughs> so, anyway, we were having a good laugh about that. But let me pray for us and then we'll read the scriptures together. God, we do thank you for your church We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our all in all, who covers us with his grace and his blood, who has pardoned all of our sins, who has made a way for us to be right with God, not on our striving, our running, our grasping, our clawing, but simply on the base of his steadfast love. His promises given to us in Christ. Father, I pray that Christ's Redeemer Church would be a church that holds tightly to those truths, that washes itself often in that grace and continues to drink from the mercy of God's cup every day. God, I just pray that as your word is preached tonight, that you would be honored, that you'd be magnified, that your people would be built up in the faith and encouraged to love Jesus more than they loved him when they walked in here today. God, thank you for your word, and thank you for your Holy Spirit that will not let one drop of your word fall to the ground and be wasted. God, we do praise and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we read God's word together? Philippians chapter 1, starting in 18. says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage... Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. You can be seated. I was looking at a brief devotional, and it says this about living between two worlds. The Christian believer is always living in an inescapable tension. Much as we would love to be free of this tension until we leave this earthly scene 
and enter the nearer presence of our great and gracious God, we will be engaged every moment of every day in this tension. I hardly need to spell out to you just what this tension is, but I will do so nonetheless. Here and now we live as strangers in a foreign land. We are children of living God. We are even now seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Every breath we breathe takes us nearer home, and yet we're not home. We live out the life of faith in a world shrouded in unbelief. The truth is that every Christian lives simultaneously in two places. Our life is a tale of two cities. The fact is that the Christian life is a life of irresolvable tension. We are, by God's grace, aliens and strangers. We march to the beat of a heavenly drum in a world-shaped, earthbound horizon. We live to the glory of God in a world which lives for itself. More acutely, we live to be holy as God is holy in bodies of death marked with indwelling sin. The tension is within as well as without. We cannot, this side of glory, escape the tension without becoming a disloyal traitor to our God and Savior. The tension is real, at times overwhelmingly real. You know, that's so true. <laughs> it's so true in my own life, and I'm sure it's true in yours. There's a tension to the Christian faith that every morning we get up, no matter how good the day is, <laughs> there's something just not right. So here in Philippians, Paul begins and says, Yes, I will rejoice. And what we have here is Paul repeating the main thrust of his letter. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. And Paul continually tries to strive to turn the Philippian church back to its passion, the passion and power and joy of the gospel of what Christ has done for them. This is the call of our church here, right? To turn one another back to the power and joy of the gospel every week we come together because all of us are prone to leave the God we love. Let me remind you that Paul is in a very difficult situation here. He's in jail. He's waiting possibly an unjust verdict that might lead to him getting his head chopped off. Not a very good place to be. And yet Paul is not consumed with himself. <laughs> He's not consumed with dying. He's consumed that other people would know the joy of Christ. He's consumed with glorifying and honoring Jesus. And you've got to ask the question, what, what is this? What is this? What is this joy? Is it the power of positive thinking? Is that what we have here with Paul? Is Paul just blind and naive to his own situation, his own circumstances? Does he not know the seriousness of death? Is Paul just denying the reality of where he is? Has Paul been so influenced by the philosophers of the day, like Seneca, the Stoic, as he quotes, let us meet with bravery whatever may befall us. Let us never feel a shroud of our thought of being wounded 
or being a prisoner or poverty or persecution, let us not feel any fear. And I tell you, no, it's not the power of positive thinking. And no, Paul is not a Stoic. Paul has his roots in a much deeper stream than the Stoic. Paul has his roots in Christ. Paul learned this from Jesus himself. If we looked at Mark chapter 14 and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ doesn't deny the struggle. The struggle and the suffering that he's going through as he faces death, as he faces the wrath of God, he doesn't deny that. He freely acknowledges that he's struggling And he says that he falls to the ground and prays that if it's possible, that this cup might pass from him. And yet Christ goes on to say, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus and Paul know the sovereignty and the sweetness of God. Do you know the sovereignty and the sweetness of God? See, if you just know the sovereignty of God, you can often think that God is just ruling and reigning without any love or compassion. But Jesus and Paul both know the sovereignty and the sweetness of God. The sweetness of God that says, even if you get your head chopped off, I will be there to bring you home to my loving arms, to a place of joy and peace. Romans chapter 4, verses 18 and 21, it's Abraham, and it's a great passage. You all know the passage, and it says that Abraham in hope, says he believed against hope. What is that? Is that double talk? It says Abraham in hope believed against hope, and it's not double talk, but what Abraham is saying is that a hope, a supernatural hope in God And there's another hope, and it's an earthly hope. And as Abraham was looking at the supernatural hope of God, and he was looking at the earthly hope of his own body, and the body of his wife who was barren, and she couldn't have kids, right? And he was about 100 years old, and he's saying, Man, I know I can't have a kid. I know my wife can't have this child, Isaac, that God has promised me, but I also know the hope of serving a supernatural God. So Moses is, I mean, Abraham is very keenly aware of his circumstances. And he's like, I know that my body is as good as dead. And yet I know that I'm going to have a child because God has given me a promise. And I love this part of the passage. It says, and Abraham did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body as good as dead. It says, no unbelief made him waver concerning God's promises, but he was fully convinced that God had the promise, had the power to do what he had promised. So we see Paul and we see Abraham, they have their roots in Christ. And Paul is trying to encourage the Philippian church to plant their roots deep in the waters of knowing Christ. And that's where joy is found. Paul goes on to say in verse 19, says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 
that these circumstances are going to turn out for my deliverance. You know, isn't it interesting that deliverance doesn't come from looking within, but deliverance comes from looking without? It's the same with salvation. Salvation doesn't come from looking within. Salvation comes from looking without to Christ. And Paul says that he knows that his deliverance will come, but it will not come from him looking inwardly. It will come from him looking outwardly. He finds deliverance and strength and perseverance in community, not in isolation. We probably all run to isolation. I want you to think about that, church, because I, I don't believe the church in America believes that. That ultimately, we can always rejoice because God, but the means by which God shows up is through the prayers of His people and His Holy Spirit. So let me be clear about what Paul is saying here, because I want you to hear this. Paul is saying that if he's going to continue to the end, if he's going to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus is giving him, if he's going to work out his salvation with fear and trembling, if he's going to make it to heaven, it's going to be because of the prayers of God's people and the Holy Spirit's presence. So Paul's salvation, his strength comes from others, not himself. From the prayers of the Philippians, not from his scripture memory not from his personal devotional life, but from the prayers of God's people and the presence of God's Spirit. For example, when Fraser Reed gets overwhelmed at work because he's piled over with more work to do at his office, he is sustained from despair by Lee praying for him. That the Knapp family and what they have been through, they're sustained through Josh's prayers for them. That's what Paul is saying here. That our prayers are not about us. Our prayers are about each other. And through our prayers for one another, you are sustained. You are upheld. Rescued from despair. I think about Kevin and Carrie Dumas who have not been able to be with us for months. And they love the body of Christ. They love Jesus' church. But because of their physical health, they can't come. And I think, Ryan, do, do you uphold them? Do you sustain them? Do you pray for them so that God might deliver them through your prayers by His Holy Spirit? So when you see those little group me's come out to you guys, know that that's the theology behind why we send those out. Is that your prayers really do sustain God's people. So being in church on Sunday <laughs> is really not about you, and it's not about me. It's about God and about God's people. And sure, we want to hear God's Word, but we're here so that I can hear 
Hey, Ryan, I'm struggling. Uphold me in my struggle by getting on your knees to God. You know, as I thought about this, the passage in 1 Samuel came to mind as Samuel is talking to, about God's people. and He says, far be it from me that I should sin by failing to pray for God's people. And then I thought about Exodus 17. It says, talks about Joshua. He goes out to fight the Amalekites. And Moses goes up on the hill to intercede for Joshua as he's fighting the Amalekites. And as Moses intercedes successfully, Joshua is winning in the conflict. And as Moses fails to intercede for Joshua, the Israelites begin to fail in the conflict. And there is such an intertwining of the prayers of God's people and the being delivered from things that as Moses' hands come down, they begin to experience defeat. So much so that Aaron and Hur get on both sides of Moses and hold his hands in the air so that he can intercede for Joshua as he's on the battlefield. And man, what a beautiful picture that is of how we uphold each other. Church, look to your right and your left and know that it is you and your prayers and the Spirit of the living God that upholds one another as we intercede for one another in prayer. And we can do that as we drive down the road as we're at the baseball game and wherever we are in life. So get in each other's world and know one another's struggles. You know, hopefully it won't be long and our church will become a real church, a particular church. And you guys will elect leaders for the church. And I exhort you to elect people who believe this. Not businessmen or smart men who have all the right answers, but men who will pray and who believe that it is prayer that upholds God's people in God's church and not their planning and their goals but God and His sovereignty. Let's be honest, we all fail at this, right? I mean, the pastor, the congregation, but I want to encourage you. We have an elder brother, and his name is Jesus, and he ever leads, lives to intercede for us. Isn't that good news? <laughs> Isn't that the beauty of it, that we can't get it done, and Jesus is always interceding for us, right? The good news is we fail one another every day, and yet the Holy Spirit is interceding for each of us with groans that words cannot express. We have a God who knows us. He knows our weaknesses, and He has provided a way in Christ to sustain us. But church, 
even though that's a great truth about Christ and His Spirit. Let us not forsake the privilege of praying for one another. Let us keep our post and let us continue to uphold one another in prayer. Paul goes on in verse 20 and says this, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, as now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Everyone has a telos in life. It's a goal. It's a primary purpose. It's an intent. It's an aim in life. In other words, we all live leaning forward, leaning towards something, towards a passion, a vision of what we think the good life is. Blaise Pascal put it this way. He says, we all wager, no matter if you want to or not, you are already committed. You can't not bet your life on something. And what we have in verse 20 is Paul saying, this is my telos. This is what I'm going to wager everything on. I'm going to place my whole bet on Jesus Christ. Paul lays out his aim and his focus and his passion and his desire and his delight. Paul is utterly convinced as St. Augustine would say, our hearts are made to find their end in God, and we will be anxious and restless when we try to substitute it for other things. Doesn't that describe our world? Doesn't that describe our world when we get our aim off of Christ? Anxious, restless. But doesn't that describe our greater world too? Think about America and all that we have in the restlessness and the anxiousness of people around us. It's everywhere. And it's because we don't know Christ. Another way of what Paul is saying is he's saying, I will not be ashamed by giving my affections to other things. I will not be shamed by trading in the spring of living water for broken cisterns. I will not be shamed by putting my hope in idols that will leave me hopeless and defeated and in complete despair on the day of reckoning. I will not give my love and my dreams and my strength to any other but Christ because He is the ultimate treasure. Do you believe that, church? Do I believe that? Paul believed that. Paul wanted the Philippians to believe that. He understood it was their only hope to have joy in the midst of suffering is to believe that Christ is the ultimate treasure, the place in which we find rest and anxiety is chased away. Paul says, I won't hedge my bet. I'm all in. I'm fully convinced 
Christ is Son of God, Savior. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking, when do I have full courage in life? Like, when, when, when am I, like, filled with courage? And I was thinking of these different and crazy things, and I was like, you know, I, I'd be filled with courage If I was in a water fight with a pistol gun and I had the fire truck, I'd be, I'd be full of courage. I mean, there'd just be no doubt, like, I'm, I'm going to win, right? And, and I was thinking, you know, in a forest fire, if this forest fire is coming and it's burning down everything, and you, you have full courage if your house is out in the middle, middle of the Atlantic Ocean, you, you're not fretting about the forest fire. And I'm like, why am I always fretting? God, Jesus. God of very God, flesh of very flesh, risen from the grave, conquered death. And I was thinking, why, why don't I have this kind of confidence? Why don't I enjoy this kind of peace when I preach or when things go haywire at home and sadly more often than not right we're anxious and restless about the forest fire and we live in Christ and as I thought about it more and more and I just said God what, what, what is it Ben gave me a book not too many weeks ago. We may even read it this summer. And it's, it's You Are What You Love is the name of the book. And as I was looking and reading through this book, I believe our, our purpose and our aim and our desire and our directional living in life is, is more determined by our practices, our liturgy, our daily routines, and they are by our thinking. So what we feed on and what we practice and what we order our lives around soon becomes the passion or the desires of our lives, the longings of our hearts that determine the orientation of the way we live. And as I thought about it more and more, like the Christian church in America is so geared towards thinking, right? Like, I need to know God's Word, and we do need to know His Word, and I need to think rightly about God's Word, but I think the reason that we're losing the battle is because of our liturgy and our practices in life. In the Old Testament, God would tell His people to root out all the Canaanites and, and to root them out of the country and the reason is it was because not was he so much worried about their thinking, but he was worried that the Canaanites and their way of living and their liturgy and their practices would become the practices of his people. You could have probably asked any good Jew, any good Israelite at that time, the scriptures, he could have probably rattled off the scriptures to you left and right. But because he lived among the practices 
of the Canaanites, it soon began to influence him. And I think us here in America are way more influenced by the practices of our world than we think. Affections are radically shaped by the liturgy of the day. That's why we don't just talk about church. You know that? That's the reason we don't just think about church. That's the reason we do church, right? That's the reason we gather on Sunday and practice worshiping God and practice hearing His Word and practice praying for one another. Because as we practice these things, God begins to fan our hearts into flame for Him more and more and more. So we do communion. We do baptisms. We don't just talk about it. And God gives means to draw our hearts and affections closer and closer and closer to Him. And I think we bought into that. This idea is that if we know all the right things and we think all the right things, that we will win the battle. And you won't. You won't. I was thinking how did I get so competitive in life? I am like ultra competitive. I hate losing. I mean, if you beat me, I will practice 10,000 times to beat you next time. Sometimes that's pride. And I was like, how did I get this way? I mean, I, I grew up athletic and playing, but I'm like, how, how did I come here? Did my dad just continually put in my mind, hey, Ryan, you need to be a winner, you need to be a winner, you need to be... No, that's not what happened. You know what happened? At five years old, I began to practice this liturgy in my life. And this liturgy was, man, when I get to the game, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to win. And as I practiced that for 24 years of my life playing sports and athletics, you know what's fanned in the flame? You know what my passion is? It's winning. It's winning. It didn't come because of my thinking. It didn't come because someone sat me down every day and taught me about winning. It came because I practiced it over and over and over and over again. And Paul had practiced walking with Jesus for so long. He's like, I got one passion. I've got one goal. I've got one aim. And it's Jesus glorified. And everybody around me, I want them to glorify Jesus as well. I really want you to think about this. I believe our world not only tries to conform us to its way of thinking, but its liturgy. I want you to think about the struggles that we each have in our own lives. I want you to think about impatience and arrogance and being egocentric and materialistic, having a deserving mentality, self-reliance, productivity, achievement. Why are those so hard for us? If I ask any of you right now to give me a theological why these things are not good, you could rattle off left and right. Why do we continue to struggle with them? It's because the liturgy of our culture is telling us these things every day. And if we don't put practices in place in our lives to practice humility and thanksgiving, you're not just going to look up and overcome that. I don't care if you know the truth or not. 
It's the practices of our lives that determine the direction and the leanings of our life. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is so Christ-centered in his liturgy that it brought him to a deeper and fuller and more confident belief in Christ. So much so that he can say this, for me to live is just the exaltation of Jesus. And for me, to, for me to die is joy. Think about that. In America, we don't think like that. You know what I think? I think death. Oh, oh my gosh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take away Disneyland from me. It's going to take away my children, my wife. It's going to take... I don't think like Paul. Hey, living, if I get to live, it's to exalt Jesus. If I die... Man, it's getting what I really want anyway, and that's Jesus. If I live, it's all about you guys. That's what Paul's saying. If I live, it's all about you. If I die, it's about me. Because when I die, I get Jesus. But if I'm going to be here, I'm going to be here for God's church. Because I want God's church to know their Savior like I know the Savior. I want God's church to want to desire and have a passion to magnify Christ the way I want to magnify Christ. And Paul says that he pours himself out like a drink offering. What does this practically look like for us as Christians? Verse 22 and 26 says this. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Jesus. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. For your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. Paul says, if I'm to go on living with you guys, my goal is this, that you would become an overflowing. That word ample means to overflow. That you would have an overflowing passion to glorify Christ. But he said, it's far better for me to go be with Jesus. But I love you guys, and I know that Christ wants me to stay and continue to fan into flame your passion for Christ. Church, I want you to think about, I want you to think about those things. I want you to think about God's call for us to pray for one another and sustain one another. And then I want you to go home, and I want you to sit down, and I want you to think about the liturgy of your home. I want you to think about the practices of your home. I want you to go to work, and I want you to, while you're at work, I want you to think about the liturgy of your workplace. Because wherever you're at, there's a liturgy. There are practices, and those practices are shaping who you are. So I want to encourage you. 
Set up a liturgy in your home and in your soul that fans in the flame your passion for Christ, your passion for His glory, your passion for His people. Living between two worlds is a hard place to be, isn't it? Because God is calling us to do something that we know ultimately within our own strength we can't do. <laughs> right? We can't do this apart from God's grace and the prayers of God's people. But with a proper understanding of God's church and a proper understanding that church is not all about me, but it's really all about God and all about others. In a proper pursuit and vision of glorifying Christ and seeing Him exalted, we can finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given us to do. Let's pray together. Father, we live in a broken world.